0: This is the Read, Write, and Create podcast. The podcast where you get a bite-sized session of creative writing coaching from me, Lori L. Tharps. I'm an award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, a journalist, and a former college professor. I've spent more than 20 years writing, teaching, and coaching creative writers, and I created this podcast because I want to help as many BIPOC writers as possible get their stories out of their heads and into the world. Are you ready? Let's go. Hello, writers and wordsmiths, storytellers and scribes. I hope you are all doing well and that your summer writing projects are filling you with joy. As you can hear, I'm back with another episode of my best of author interview series that I'm doing for the summer months while I am officially on a break from creating new episodes for this podcast. On today's show, I'm going to be sharing an inspiring and heartfelt 2021 interview that I did with Dr. Yaba Blay, author of the beautiful coffee table book, One Drop, Shifting the Lens on Race. Dr. Blay is a scholar activist, public speaker, and cultural consultant whose scholarship work and practice centers on the lived experiences of Black women and girls, with a particular focus on identity and body politics and beauty practices. Lauded by O Magazine for her social media activism, she has launched several viral campaigns, including Locks of Love, Pretty Period, and Professional Black Girl. Dr. Blay earned a Master's of Arts and PhD in African-American Studies with Distinction and a Graduate Certificate in Women's Studies from Temple University. She also holds a Master of Education in Counseling Psychology from the University of New Orleans. During our conversation, you'll hear how Dr. Blay's book, One Drop, went from being a self-published labor of love and resistance to arriving on bookshelves with a major publisher seven years later. Dr. Blay talks about what she had to sacrifice to get One Drop out into the world and why she refused to compromise on her vision for a book about colorism in full color. One Drop is actually more than just a coffee table book. It is a gorgeous visual exploration of the meaning of Black identity combining oversized photographic portraits and first-person essays, as well as a critical historical examination of the one-drop rule, this book is just one of Dr. Blay's numerous contributions to the global conversation around colorism, skin color politics, and Blackness. Of course. Talking about a book on colorism led to a riveting discussion about colorism and skin color politics since I also wrote a book on the same subject called Same Family, Different Colors, Confronting Colorism in America's Diverse Families. By the end of our conversation, in addition to cheering for Dr. Blay, I think you'll also think differently about self-publishing, and maybe you'll see it as a revolutionary act as well. It is an option that many BIPOC writers and other writers from marginalized communities have utilized throughout history to get their words and their stories out into the world. So without further ado, let's jump into the conversation with Dr. Yaba Blay. As we get into this conversation about OneDrop, I know that you do so much on the interwebs and, you know, you do a lot of multimedia work. And I was just curious, why did OneDrop become a book instead of, you know, some sort of multimedia presentation? Like, why did you choose this medium?
1: Interestingly enough, at the time that I embarked on what I was then calling the OneDrop project, In my mind, it was multimedia. I'm a very visual person. I have an immense love for photography. And so as I was inspired to walk into this process, I knew that there had to be a visual component to it. At the time, I was probably four years out of school. I had finished my doctorate at Temple in African-American studies. And, you know, most folks will attempt to revise their dissertation for their first book. For me, which is interesting, Thinking of my dissertation and thinking of OneDrop, both projects that I did, quote unquote, on my own, what I recognize is they have both similar motivations and also that I worked myself into dust doing both of them. And so because of that post-traumatic stress, I would say, of the dissertation, I didn't revisit it. I still haven't revisited it. And so One Drop was the next thing. You know, I wanted to do something that I was excited about. And at the time, again, like I said, a visual person, I didn't start out saying this is going to be a book. It was a project along the path. It made sense to make it into a book. So I'd always been thinking of it just as a general visual project. It so happened to morph into a quote unquote coffee table book as well as a CNN documentary.
0: So for people who have not seen the book, and we're going to get into the actual journey of getting the book made and the inciting incident that got you started, but how do you describe it? You just said a coffee table book. How would you describe it? What's your kind of elevator pitch of what One Drop is as a book?
1: I'd say it is a visual exploration into the diversity of Blackness. What's interesting is that the book really gives us a visual tour, if you will, into the many faces of Blackness. Who are featured in the book are folks who identify as Black in one way or another. They all use a variety of terms to self-identify. But on first appearance, some might question their Blackness and or say that they don't quote unquote look Black. And so I was interested in having them talk about their Blackness and how they came into their identity. It's very much still connected to my general work on colorism and skin color politics in general. And I would say that my own personal experience with colorism as well as my work on colorism is what led me to even start the work.
0: So just to give you my personal like experience with One Drop, so One Drop came out originally in 2014, and at that time, I had recently had my third and final child, who is a girl, and I have two boys, and my three children are literally three different skin tones and three different hair textures, and at the time, my daughter was like super white. (laughs) She has since ripened up a little bit, but my whole experience of a mother was impacted by the fact that my children don't look like me and they don't look like each other and they all look different so you know my eldest looks like a black child my middle child is so pale that literally a woman at like a playgroup she didn't threaten me, but she was like, you really need to take him to get a DNA test because they mix babies up. That baby doesn't look anything like you. I mean, he was what? two at the time and I was like <laughs> horrified. She was like, she just wouldn't let it go. And sadly it turned out our kids ended up going to the same elementary school. So I had mm. to see that woman over and over again. And I was always like really feeling hostile towards her. Mm-hmm. And then my daughter was born and looks uh, like people, <laughs> somebody actually asked me if I adopted her from China. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about what is black because I am a black woman and I wanted to raise my children to be proud of their blackness. And yet they were constantly questioned. That was just something that was just in my mind all the time. And then you wrote this wonderful book and I was like, oh my God, thank you, Yama. You know, it's like you reached into my soul and be like, here, honey, read the book. You know, just take this and put it in your house. And like, there you go. Because it was like... It was good for me, but it was also good for my children to page through this book and see like there are Black people that look like them, right? That Blackness isn't a shade. It's not a hair texture. It can be so many different things. So I was so grateful when this book came out and I just realized how like there's nothing else like that. There's just nothing else that does what your book does, which... You said coffee table book, So yeah, it's beautiful to look at and it's oversized, but it's also so full of information. Like you could tell this is not a book that a photographer did. This is a book that a PhD doctor, intelligent, culturally aware person said, I'm going to pour all this information into this book and it's going to be all these things. So I guess that was just my way of saying like, this book is so awesome and everybody should get it, but it also is showing how complex and unique this book is. So I want to take people on the journey because I just said how wonderful it is. And yet you couldn't get this book published by a traditional publisher. So let's take people through the journey. Where did the idea come from that you said that you had finished your dissertation, but what was the thing that said, I think I need to talk about Blackness in a way that people understand that Blackness doesn't look like one thing?
1: So, as you mentioned, I spent a lot of time on the interwebs, probably too much time on social media at the time, Facebook. Was my thing. So we're talking about 2010, 2011, and lots of conversations happening online around blackness, around black identity, and started seeing a little bubbling of conversations around who is black and who is not, right? And so a few things were happening simultaneously and also allowed me to reach back into my past. And so I remember being on a panel with Rosa Clemente, who identifies as a black Puerto Rican. And this was the first time as learned as I am, I have a PhD in African-American studies from Temple, the probably the blackest program there is historically and contemporarily. And so, you know, I studied diaspora. I've taken students on study abroad to Ghana. My family's from Ghana. I understand the idea of global blackness, but this was the first time that I had been in conversation with someone who looks like Rosa who identified as Black without hesitation, capital B. I'm a Black Puerto Rican from the South Bronx, right? And I remember being completely distracted on this panel because I could not wrap my mind around how this woman came to identify herself so clearly as Black. when, in my experience with folks who are generally speaking Latinx, specifically speaking about Puerto Ricans, I had never heard a Puerto Rican who looks like Rosa and even darker identify as black. And so after the panel, we talked and I'm like, I need to talk to you some more. Right. It was my own personal curiosity. And so even just reflecting on that conversation before I actually interviewed Rosa for the book, it made me think specifically and reflect specifically on my own experiences growing up American born Ghanaian in New Orleans, For folks who are familiar with New Orleans, folks who are not familiar with New Orleans, New Orleans is home to a distinct group of folks who self-identify as Creole. Creole means a whole lot of things to a whole lot of people, but in my lived experience as a little dark-skinned girl, it meant folks who had, quote-unquote, pretty color and good hair. Folks who often rejected me because of the complexion of my skin. And so, Some may have rejected the identity of Black or African-American very proudly, Creole. But for the most part, I just knew that we weren't the same, at least from my lived experience. And so because of the negative experiences that I had with folks who identified as Creole coming up, I know that I moved through the world with particular assumptions about folks who were light-skinned, folks who I could look at and know that, you know, we're receiving some level of privilege based upon what they look like. And to go beyond the surface, what we know historically is that what they look like represented certain things for certain people. So if we take it as far back as enslavement, if we take it as far back to the quadroon balls in the Louisiana area, it's that someone's phenotype basically communicated the percentage of African blood they had or the percentage of European blood that they had or the percentage of other blood that they had, but essentially creating this hierarchy, creating the spectrum with white at the top and black on the bottom. And so the closer one's physical features approximated whiteness, the less barbaric, dare I say, the less uncivilized the further away you were from a particular experience with enslavement just seen as more valuable and so i knew that we were not the same but in my lived experience just knowing that those folks moved with a certain air about them and absolutely rejected me to a large degree and so fast forward x amount of years lots and lots and lots of experiences but then i get to temple you know, and I've always lived in particularly black cities. I've always had a particularly black community surrounded by blackness in a variety of ways, racially and culturally. And so getting the temple felt like another homecoming. And so I get to Temple, and again, it's one of the blackest programs there is seated in North Philadelphia, one of the blackest spaces in the Northeast. And so, you know, we're not just talking about black and white, we're talking about African and European. Folks are wearing their dashikis and natural hair. And so we're in a particular space of cultural blackness. And it was probably around my third year. We had a new student come in and she's also featured in the book, but very light skin, very much reminded me of folks I grew up around, Creole folks. And I remember, again, I just described this very black space. And so there were some very black cultural rules that we all live by. But this woman would walk into spaces and not speak. (laughs) And I'm like, wait a minute, you speak to people when you walk into a room, right? Hey, how y'all doing? Good morning, good afternoon, anything. She would not speak. And so me putting two plus two together in my mind, she was no different than the folks that I was reflecting on, right? The folks who thought they were better than me because of what they looked like. And I, I just didn't fool with her, right? I knew her name, I knew who she was, but I didn't fool with her. And she came in for the master's program. And so I want to say it was the end of her second year when she was getting ready to graduate one of our common professors, one of my favorite professors was like, yeah you really need to read Danielle's paper and I'm like, what do I need to read her paper for I'm reading her paper <laughs> He's like <laughs> he's like no, no you know I think I think you should read her paper And so I read her paper and she's talking about growing up in a Mennonite community. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I tell people all the time, you know, once you leave Philadelphia, you're in Pennsylvania. Those are two different things. Like once you leave New Orleans, you're in Louisiana. Those are two different <laughs> things, right? And so Absolutely. She, she grew up in Lancaster in a Mennonite community, uh, white mother, white Mennonite mother, Black father, who actually passed away when she was, I want to say, preteen or teenager. But in any case, she talked about this experience of being the Blackest person in her community, being different from everyone in her community. And though her mother and family tried to keep her connected to her Blackness, that she always knew that she was different to the extent that she stopped going to school because the racism was so palpable. Then she comes to Temple to do a master's in African-American studies, not as a career choice, but because she wanted to, right? She wanted to learn more about herself, about her culture, about her background. But she gets here and she gets to North Philly. She gets to the eighth floor of Gladfelter Hall and has the opposite experience. She goes from being the blackest person in her community to not being received or accepted in this black space. So occupying this middle ground and trying to really figure out who she was. And it it sat with me, particularly as somebody who does work on blackness and, and centers the experiences of blackness. I definitely identify as an ethnographer. And so I always want to lead with people's stories to give us a particular truth. And her story sat with me then and it sat with me for a while. And so, you know, fast forward X amount of years. So I have this experience with Rosa Clemente made me think back to this experience with Danielle. And it just set me on this journey of like, okay, yes, I am a scholar on colorism. And when we use that word specifically, we are generally talking about the hierarchical perceptions of value based upon skin color and the discrimination that goes along with it. So it's very it operates in one direction. Right. But is there another side? Now, again, not to compare these things, but it's one of the reasons why I use the language of skin color politics as a general way to think about all of this work. So colorism is one thing, skin color politics would be the broader box, I guess. And so wanting to, in fact, the first iteration of this project, I was calling it the other side of Blackness, where I I wanted to hear the perspectives of folks who felt like they were Black, who identified as Black, but because of the ways that they looked, that their Blackness may have been Either questioned, if not rejected. And so I started with Rosa and Danielle. I started by speaking with them and interviewing them. And it grew from there. I connected with Noel, who I had met when I had a pre-doctoral fellowship in Florida. And I remember meeting Noel and I forget the exact language that Noelle used, but it was something that let me know sis said she was Black, right? And again, I'm looking at her like, well, how'd that happen, right? Because again...
0: <laughs> just to interject, um, you know, Noelle is the photographer for the project, yes? yes?
1: she is the director of photography because we have folks from all over the world. And so we did use a few different photographers, but she's the primary photographer and worked with the photographers to make sure that we had a uniform look, yes. But she was a grad student in the Africa diaspora world studies program at uh, Florida international university when I had met her and she'd moved back up to New York and we reconnected. And so a lot of the project, this, it started with me talking to folks that I connected with working with folks that I connected with and it snowballed out, you know, where folks were like, you got to talk to this person. Have you thought about talking to this? Let me connect you with that person. And so I ended up interviewing Probably 70 or so folks, 58 or 60, ended up in the book. But yeah, it was like an ethnographical journey into who's Black, who's not, and who cares. And so I wanted to know how they identified. And the thing that is still remains fascinating to me is that here are folks who identify as connected to the larger identity of Blackness, And they are constantly having to describe and define and defend their Blackness. And for as Black as I am and for as Black as I identify, my dark skin puts me in a position where I have never had to define, describe, or defend. It is a given. And so it made me think about, hmm, here are folks having one experience and they're, I'm not going to say they're in tune with, but as much as they are constantly in a position to be talking about Blackness in a particular way, whereas me, I don't. You know, if somebody were to ask me what is Blackness, I might struggle a little bit to try and come up with the words because it just is what it is for me, you know, whereas folks who have a different experience, they actually have to find the language constantly.
0: That's really interesting. It's, um, I never really thought about it that way of having to explain it and define it because nobody's ever, well, I have to say people have questioned my Blackness because of the way I speak, but nobody's ever asked, looking at me and saying, are you Black? Nobody's asking me that question. So that's really interesting. Do you feel like there was one kind of common thread that everybody spoke of?
1: Well, I mean, they all identify, and that's one thing you'll see in the book with each portrait. I use the exact language that they use when I ask them the question, how do you identify? And they use a variety of terms. I think aside from the fact that they've had their blackness questioned for a variety of reasons based upon appearance, that's definitely a common thread. But Other than that, I want to say I sense a level of frustration from all of them, you know, um, a level of exhaustion to even have to continue to have this conversation. But I think there was also a common thread of, you know, it's whatever. People can think whatever they think. I know who I am.
0: So you said um, earlier that and I I mean, I know this, but I'm not sure what the path was. Did this project start as a multimedia project. What was the the origins of the actual the story itself? Like what was it supposed to look like and how is it supposed to be distributed to the public?
1: You know, I self-identify as the queen of bright ideas. I'll blame that on my Gem <laughs> I'll blame that on my Gemini rising. I'm always wanting to do something. I just wanted to do it. It was it was a website. You know, I wanted to create a website, a repository of sorts, where folks could go and click on pictures and read stories. What had happened was, again, being active on Facebook, posting about it, talking about it. Someone I was connected to was connected to someone who was a CNN producer. Someone else I was connected to was connected to someone who was a literary agent. Both of these folks Approach me, like, have you thought about doing a book? Would you be interested in coming to Atlanta to speak on air with Don Lemon? And I'm like, okay, sure. Okay, sure. And so the book idea came from speaking with the literary agent who thought it was a great idea and thought that it would be an amazing coffee table book. I love coffee table books. I own way too many to fit on my coffee table. So I was absolutely down with that idea and so working with her at the time we worked to put together the proposal you know all of the elements that go with that we just knew it was going to be an easy sell, particularly after my experiences with CNN, right? So I go to Atlanta. I do the interviews for CNN Newsroom with Don Lemon. They do a series of sorts. I write a couple of pieces for their website. Through that experience is how I got connected with Soledad O'Brien, who told me that, you know, we're working on this final iteration of Black in America. This would be such a great topic to explore, or would you be interested in being a consulting producer? Why, yes, I would. And so <laughs> that's how that came about. Timing-wise, however, that the documentary came out in 2012, the book didn't come out until 2013. And so looking back, I'm like, ooh, that was a missed opportunity. I wish I had had the book ready earlier. But you know, everything happens the way that it happens. And so anyway. We do the proposal, agent attempts to shop it around, lots of interest, but then also lots of hesitancy. You know, the kind of common feedback I got was that photography books are expensive to produce. Full color photography books are more expensive to produce. One publisher was interested but suggested that we do black and white photos. No, I'm talking about skin color and identity can't do that in black and white. Another publisher suggested that we take the photos out and just rely upon the photos being on the website. I wasn't interested in doing that. And then there was just silence for a while. And so earlier I had mentioned working myself into dust with both my dissertation and this project based upon a similar motivation, which is somebody telling me I can't do something. So now I have to do it three times and take pictures. I'll blame that on my Sagittarius son. Um, (laughs) It is who I am. Um, But again, in all honesty, I'm absolutely trying deliberately to do better and be better because that is actually a very dangerous motivating factor because you will never be able to make everybody happy. And the idea of proving something to somebody is just, there's no victory in that, in, in in the real sense. But I set out to make this book happen on my own because the publishing industry told me that I couldn't do it. And so I did it.
0: And how did you do it? Because I feel like the message, I mean, besides the maybe lack of will from the publishing industry you know it's not a joke that it's expensive to produce a book of this size with full color and it's rich i mean it's a beautiful book i mean it does not look like somebody self published this book i mean the details here even the the vellum like cover overlay wrap is gorgeous so how did you make this happen? Because, and again, no disrespect to people who self-publish, but usually when you think of a self-published book, you're like, oh, it's it's nice. I'm going to hide it because it's so like flimsy or <laughs> just, you know, the, right. the, the, the words, they don't really look like they fit on the page properly, you know, sometimes, especially first thing out of the gate. So how did you go about doing it yourself?
1: I mean, and that's actually part of the reason why I went so hard with it, because I didn't want you to look at my book and think I was... Pulling it out of the trunk of my car. No disrespect to self-publish. <laughs> no, no disrespect. But yes, absolutely. I think because of the printers that are often available. Again, to be clear, publishing is expensive, right? And so for the average everyday person who wants to self-publish the book, they might use a print-on-demand company, right? I know Amazon has one available. There's several. That print on demand, you you lose when you're doing color photography and imagery, you lose on the quality because they're using a particular quality of paper and a particular type of bind. And so had I done this on print on demand, this would have looked completely different. I don't even know that hardcover would have been available to me. And so I did all of my research to figure out how to do this and I found a printer in Canada And it was going to be expensive because they're not going to let you print two books. You got to print thousands. So quite honestly, I pulled out of my retirement and I also did a crowdfunding campaign. I actually did two crowdfunding campaigns. The first one I did, I raised about $10,000 through Kickstarter. I raised that money just to be able to travel, to be able to pay the photographers, to be able to do the research. The second Kickstarter I did was to actually print the book. And the response and the feedback was amazing. I want to say I reached that goal of maybe twenty twenty five thousand dollars dollars in a week, just in terms of, I was calling it a pre-order. And so, yeah, I raised the money. I hired my friend, Maori Holmes, who runs the Black Star Film Festival here in Philadelphia. At the time, she you know, Mayori is another one. She does a gazillion different things and she does them all well. She designed the book, you know, hired a lawyer, hired all the people I needed in place to make this book possible, trademark ISBN and all these things. And again, it was me. It was me solo dolo for the most part. And it was a lot of work and I can say seven years later, it was absolutely worth it. If you had asked me at the time, I probably would have crawled underneath my bed um, <laughs> because it was it was a lot of work. And that's why I come back to the point that I make about proving something. Who was I proving it to? The publishing industry wasn't thinking about me. I'm happy that I did it. I'm happy that the book is able to be in people's hands and on their coffee tables. But again, I'm not a big publisher. So I was only able to print a certain number in that first run. And it took all of that in order to be able to do it. And so what happened was fast forward three, four years, the book's out of print. Folks on Amazon are hustling it for five, six, seven, eight hundred $800. Folks are constantly hitting me up. How can I get a copy of your book? How, And I'm like, it's out of print. And I definitely wasn't thinking about doing it again. And so, you know, more recently, Mid-2020, I would say, I've been constantly encouraged by folks. When's the second book coming out? What's the next book? Been trying to think about what I wanted to write. And if I'm honest, a lot of the work that I've been doing in terms of creating content, visual content, multimedia content, the projects that I've done since then, you know, I launched Pretty Period right after One Drop was released because I needed to do something that was going to bring me some joy. You know, I was trying to build myself back up. And so folks, you know, constantly checking in what's next, what's next. And just reflecting back on that experience of Drop, it's like, I can't do this again. And so what happened was because I got one rejection, one series of rejections from the publishing industry, I think I had internalized that I would never be able to publish, that I wasn't going to be good enough to publish in the industry, that I still needed that validation. So moving forward, if you were to ask me about what's the next book, I automatically assume that I'm going to have to do it again, myself, which is what kept me from even doing it. But more recently, blinders off, more affirmations and encouragement from friends and colleagues that no, you know, you'll, you'll get a book deal. It's possible. Even if they didn't do it the first time, that doesn't mean it'll never happen. And so I was really excited to start working on my next book and connected with a new literary agent. And she suggested that we get one drop Into the world, if that's what the people want, let's see if there's a publisher who will be interested in re-releasing it. And within a week of her putting out the pitch, Beacon picked it up.
0: Oh, I love it. So you didn't have to do anything to update it or change it or to it was more just let's see if anybody wants to bring this out again.
1: Yep. Same book. It's going to have an updated look, whereas my self-published version, you get a a double cover with the jacket. This book is, it's no jacket to it. But other than that, they kept Maori's design. It's an updated cover, but that's it.
0: I feel like I just want to like an applause. Like that was such a beautiful story. You know, I'm like, let's just take a moment. Let's just take a moment right now. Um, How does that feel that seven years later... Publisher says, okay, let's do this. It's perfect the way it is. How does that make you feel after, like you said, working yourself into dust?
1: You know, I I have moments. Like, I'm extremely proud of myself. I'm extremely proud of everyone who shared themselves with me, trusted me. To tell their stories. I'm also proud of Beacon for taking a chance on me. I'm proud of my agent for not hesitating and for believing me. Like I'm proud of all of us. I'm trying to not lean into the part of me that's like, oh, it took seven years, huh? Because um, <laughs> <right? laughs> I can't be mad at everybody forever. But I, I will say quite honestly, I think what's interesting from a Cost risks, analysis, whatever you call it in the business sense. Like I can understand perhaps why at the time the publishing industry may have hesitated. I wasn't a big name, anybody. I didn't have a whole lot of followers or supporters. It wasn't I didn't have a book prior to that. I had some academic articles. But, you know, were they going to get their money back? They didn't know. They didn't know. If they could take that risk on me, I get it on surface, but I think what it really speaks to in the publishing industry, you know, a lot of times they'll use the language of author driven books and that's what it is. You know, it doesn't mean And what I've learned and I think the thing that has given me peace and it took me a while to get here is that rejection from the publishing industry does not mean your work is not good. It might just mean they don't know if they can make their money off of you. Those are two different things. There are a lot of folks out here who have a lot to say, amazing writers, brilliant thinkers. But if the publishing industry doesn't think they can make their money, we might not hear their voices if they don't do it on their own. And so I had to separate those two things because understandably so, rejection doesn't feel good, (laughs) you know, and you, you... internalize that in a variety of ways. And to some extent, I did question whether or not my work was worth it. It absolutely is worth it. And so I just say that and I say that to so many people and I say that to anybody who's listening. Like a no from the publishing industry does not mean that your work is not worth it. It might just simply be about money. And so in this moment, somebody selling books out of their car. I'm not going to immediately scoff at them like, oh, my God, you self-published. That must mean that nobody, you know, it doesn't mean anything other than they have a book that might be worth reading. Absolutely.
0: And I've, that'll be the pull quote on the blog version of this. Just because the publishing industry said, no, doesn't mean your work isn't worthy or that your work doesn't matter or that your work doesn't need to be seen. It's so important. I had the author Zetta Elliott. I don't know if you're familiar with yeah, her work, but she, okay. Am. So when she was on the show, she said something that just, just the way she said it, I, didn't, I never thought about it this way, but she said that, You know, when she tried to publish a children's book about a little girl whose mother was in prison, everybody said no, but she published it anyway. She created her own press and has since then published many books on her own. She also publishes with major publishers, but when they say no to her work, she publishes it herself. And she said that she looks at self-publishing as an act of activism. She says that this is my activism. Self-publishing and she, you know, hearkens back to Barbara Smith and Audre Lorde and Kitchen Table Press as like, if we don't do it, nobody else is going to. That's right. The publishing industry is still so overwhelmingly white. Many times I would say they just don't know. They don't know. They don't get it. And it's not valued. And so I look at OneDrop. I mean, I hear you're, you know, well, I'm going to do it anyway, but I also see it as I know more than what these people are saying. Like, they don't understand that this book is so clutch. Like, this is so necessary. It's so important. And it's not been done before like this. So you knew that. I mean, of course you knew that. I mean, not only (laughs) have you been researching this for your dissertation, for your work, but like as a Black person in this world, you knew that.
1: And, And you know, what's also interesting, just thinking just about the whole process, you know, Somehow I knew that in order for these stories to be heard and or taken seriously, that I had to be the one to do it. Meaning me, the person who researches colorism, me, the person who is very dark skinned and unquestionably black. And there are no questions about where even my political orientation stands when it comes to blackness and black lives. I knew it had to be me to open the door for these conversations to happen, because had this book been done, by someone who looked like everyone else in this book, it could have easily been written off.
0: Mm, such a good point. I Do think. you think? <laughs> I, I agree. I agree 100%. And that's, um, I mean, I never really thought about it that way, but you're absolutely right. Jumping to this idea of this moment, the fact that we are in this moment where books by Black authors that talk about Blackness seem to be having a I don't want to say a a heyday, like I don't want to overstretch it, but how do you feel about your book coming out now when there definitely does seem to be more acknowledgement and interest in black stories?
1: fine by me. You know, if the world wants to wake up now, if we're in this moment where everyone is interested to know more collectively, to learn more, to understand more, then I think it's a great moment for this book to come out. Because I think also, again, you mentioned the publishing industry is very white. You know, oftentimes the the Blackness that is printed is based upon a particular perspective on Blackness, even from Black people, which may or may not be too Our benefit. And so, in this moment, we need some diversity, even in the stories that are being told, right? That it can't all just be about the downtrodden, oppressive experiences historically, contemporarily. It can't just be about injustice. I mean, to me, all of the work can be connected. Much of what we are talking about in this book, you know, the first section of the book, I'm giving a history of race, a history of whiteness, a history of blackness. The book is called One Drop as a nod to the one drop rule, not affirming it, not saying that that's something we should live by. But for folks to understand in this moment why we are going for each other's necks on Twitter and Instagram and wherever else there's public space and talking about who's Black and who's not, we have to take a moment to understand where we even get these definitions from. You know, so even as Black people, as we're fighting about Blackness, did we define it to begin with? Right? And so these conversations are important to me. And even in this moment, I'm excited about it coming out in this moment, Yes, having affirmed particular stories, I think, in the first iteration of the book was definitely part of the motivation and a lot of the drive behind, like, the marketing and the promotion. This time around, I'm more interested to see, like, what does this book? bring up for you. You know, you spoke about as a mother and I've heard from several mothers saying they just like having the book to be able to have their child flip through it and see themselves reflected. I think that's beautiful. I also want to talk to folks who look like me and say, well, you see how these people are defining Blackness? How would you define your Blackness? And then in the space where we are so quick to talk about who's Black and who's not, how are we defining Blackness? And is it to our benefit? What is the political function of the definitions that we are Coming up with? Are we even doing that? Are we simply operating from emotion? You know, because I was operating from emotion when I rejected Danielle. I was operating from emotion, thinking about the negative experiences that I had had in my past. It was real for me, right? But what was it connected to aside from my emotions, aside from the rejection?
0: Yeah, I love how you you said you've used the term skin color politics. Um, as you know, I've written a book about skin color politics as well. Same family, different colors. Also on Beacon Press. Shout out to Beacon Press. Love them. Shout out to Beacon. Um, <laughs> um, but um, you just made me think of a an exchange that I saw on social media somewhere questioning Kamala Harris's blackness, and I personally. Maybe because I, you know, have this, like you said, my lived experience as a parent where my children's blackness is questioned and it makes me so mad. And because I spent the last five, six years talking and researching about colorism and skin color politics. But I'm like, when can we stop deciding for other people if they're black enough? Like that question bothers me. So much. are you black enough? Are they really black? How are we defining it for other people? And who has that dictionary definition?
1: Who gets to decide based upon what measures? And bigger than all of it, for me, again, what is the function of this? We are doing this for what purpose? And again, I'm not even going to say, I'm not even going to say about a right or wrong, right? Because it is what it is. We should absolutely have all of these conversations so that we are being actively critical thinkers. But also to what end, for what purpose. And I don't know that we keep that purpose in mind. And that's part of the reason why I had to create the introduction the way that I did, because I need us to understand, white people get real clear about what whiteness is. The one drop rule was created to protect the purity of whiteness, period. But moving forward, they also controlled who gained access to this prized identity called whiteness. Because guess what? Jews weren't always white. The Irish weren't always white. Italians weren't always white. In this moment right now, if you are from North Africa, and listen to the language that I'm about to use, if you are from North Africa, you get to identify as white. White people are opening and closing the gates. Why are we attempting to mimic what they're doing? And so, again, in the broader scope of white supremacy, we have to understand how we are all participants and we are all agents of white supremacy because it's created a particular ideology about how we should function and operate in the world. And what I'm saying is, can we question that and move a little differently? Again, I'm not saying that some of the questions that we have about people's blackness are wrong. I'm just saying, based upon what? For what reason and to what end? What is our goal when we represent 13% of the population in this country?
0: Yeah, I love that this definition, this one drop, was not something that black people created to like keep ourselves close. No. (laughs) You know, it wasn't about keeping the family together.
1: No. We didn't even create race. No,
0: not at all. We didn't create
1: race because we come from cultures. We come from nations and nationalities. We didn't create race. Race was an identity that was projected onto us when we entered a particular context. Okay, we're here now. What is the function of race in our lives? I'm not completely rejecting it, but I am asking us to think critically about what this identity means. And again, there's so many ways to have this conversation. Like even the preface of the book, I had to give a justification for capitalizing B, In talking about Black people versus just the Black color, or looking at all of the different terms that participants use to identify themselves, there are folks who identify as biracial and Black. There are folks who identify as multiracial. Rosa identifies as a Black Puerto Rican. Danielle identifies as a Black Mennonite. Like, people use different languages all over the world, colored in South Africa, right? We use Negro. We use different languages all over the world. But do we understand Black, capital B, to be the larger political identity? If we are still conflating Black with African-American, herein lies one of the problems. We're still not able to even think about Blackness from a global perspective. I've had people, my family's from West Africa, from Ghana. I've had other West Africans, other Africans, other Caribbean folks say, I'm not Black, I'm Jamaican. I'm not Black, I'm Nigerian. What is your understanding of Blackness? And when we're not learning about this in an educational system, how can we expect people to know any different? We rely upon the media to feed us ourselves, you know? And so for me, it's just like, okay, the world is a classroom. Let's all push back a little bit and start thinking critically. That's, I'm, I am not trying. I'm not the Blackness whisperer. I'm <laughs> not, trying, I am not trying to give people any answers. I promise you I'm here to ask questions.
0: I remember a conversation that we had a while back about colorism. And I remember you saying something along the lines of, you know, we're never going to get past colorism if we still keep having the same conversations over and over again. And I feel like what you just said, you know, questioning who is making these definitions and to what benefit is it for black people to, to police one another, the the audacity of somebody else trying to, you know, make somebody prove their Blackness somehow.
1: But again, the question is, what kind of Blackness are you speaking of? Because again, let's peel back those layers. Oftentimes the Blackness that you are using as a comparison point is problematic in and of itself. You have a very limited understanding of what Blackness is. And so we don't all speak with a particular inflection. If we don't all walk with a particular gait, if we don't all eat collard greens and Black-eyed peas on New Year's Day, like, you know what I'm saying? So what does that mean for my Blackness when my family comes from Ghana? what does that mean for someone else's blackness when they may speak a particular way you say people question you based upon the way that you speak again these are all things that we have to check ourselves on but i think it would help if we start by getting clear about like cuz again underneath all the questions ultimately i feel like if we ask enough questions the whole thing will fall apart we'll come to realize that we're all spinning our wheels
0: of course <laughs> and i feel like if you read one drop that these questions will just, you'll have to start asking them. You just have to, you can't be on your mindset about what blackness is. Can't be unchanged after looking at this book. And I kind of want to wrap up here with the question for you, what would be satisfactory for you for people to walk away with when they finish reading one drop?
1: I think what I ultimately want again for folks is that when they, pick up a book like One Drop when they flip through it and they see the images and they read people's experiences to also connect it to the first portion of the book that speaks about the history of race in this country, the history of whiteness, the history of Blackness. I really just want people to take a moment to pause and to rethink everything they've thought already, to question how they came to know what it is they know, not only about Blackness, but about whiteness. For me, again, I want folks to walk away with more questions and hopefully those questions will drive them to have more conversations. I don't think we can afford to stop talking about it.
0: So as a final point, I just want to remind you, that your book party for One Drop was amazing. (laughs) It was truly amazing. It was a like multimedia spectacle presentation event. I just want everybody to know because I'm going to guess that because we're in the middle of a global pandemic, a big old book party is not happening. No. So if we could do a rerun, like just like a replay of that book party it was amazing it was in philly and it was at the painted bride art center if i'm not mistaken yeah is that right it was and there were like i want to be like there were jugglers and circus performers but i'm lying it wasn't that
1: (laughs) but no but but there was an exhibit
0: Yeah, it was just beautiful. It was absolutely, it just felt like really immersive. You know, it wasn't just like, oh, there's Yaba speaking at a podium and you could buy her book. You made the whole thing. Like, I feel like it really shows that you are about multimedia presentation because the book party itself was interactive, if you will. It was more than just the book itself. So it was just wonderful. So, I always want to end with asking the question, of course, what's up next? What are you working on now? And how can people, you know, support you in your work?
1: Right now, I am up to my eyelashes and promoting One Drop, of course, as it is being released on February 16th, of course, during Black History Month.
0: Go Black History Month for all the Black books. Yay! Uh,
1: Yes, buy them all. Buy two. Um, (laughs) um, But what's up next? I am actually, I think I'm ready. Writing is not easy for me. It takes a lot out of me, probably because of the topics that I choose to write about. But I am looking forward to writing this next book, which I will say is generally going to be focused on beauty, Black beauty.
0: Mm, Nice, nice. Well, can you just share a little bit about Pretty Period and Professional Black Girl so people can understand you're a very busy woman?
1: (laughs) Well, after um, one drop, was released, that book party was uh, Black Friday, 2013. My granddaughter, my eldest granddaughter was born on December 17th, 2013, 2014 opens up and I launched a project called Pretty Period, which was based upon my experience that I've had way too often as a dark-skinned woman, that people's way of complimenting me oftentimes will sound like, oh, you're pretty for a dark skin girl which is offensive, right? Because in that presupposes that dark-skinned women aren't generally seen as beautiful. So the retort to that is, no, I'm pretty, period. And so Pretty Period is a visual project that just really speaks to the beauty of dark skin, the beauty of brown skin. And again, another project that I've heard a lot of people and a lot of parents affirm, primarily, if nothing else, to be able to see oneself reflected. You know, I didn't see myself And it's interesting in terms of timing, recently we lost Cicely Tyson and though she lived to be 96 and had a long full life, I was very sad to hear of her passing. And it just makes me think of what she represented to me at a time when there weren't a lot of women who looked like me in the mainstream media. There weren't a lot of women who looked like me and people even dared to suggest that they could be seen as beautiful. The first time I saw a woman, the com- my complexion or what I believe to be my complexion on the cover of a magazine, I was 27, 28 years old. And that was a what, you know? And so again... If we have to rely upon the mainstream media to see ourselves. We will never see ourselves. I think the beautiful thing about this moment with social media, with all kinds of independent platforms is that we are able to create the media that we need. Shout out to the Issa Rays of the world, that we're able to create the storylines and the visuals that we need, that we've been waiting on the mainstream to give us. And they just don't know how, but, you know, we have ourselves to do that. So Pretty Period was absolutely the project that brought back my sanity and brought back my joy after all of the work that I put in to doing One Drop.
0: I feel like that launched a bunch of other things things in your work as well. I mean, just in the sense of you becoming really seen as an advocate for Black girls. Like, I remember you did something for um, one of these little girls who had been like expelled from school because she was wearing dreadlocks and then professional Black girl. I feel like you have created an empire, if you will, supporting Black women and supporting them, not like financially, but supporting who they are and letting them be seen. And I just think that your work is so important. And I look forward to the next book, multimedia project, whatever it's going to be. I'm sure it's going to be amazing. So tell people where they can
1: follow you on the interwebs. What's the best way? Well, you can go to my website, yabablay.com. I believe there are links to all of my social media handles, but on both Instagram and Twitter, I am at yabablay.
0: And obviously I'll have some links to everything in the show notes, but where do you like people to buy OneDrop? And I'm asking because some people want to support a certain bookstore or, you know, where do you tell people to go buy your book?
1: Well, I say in general, you can get the book anywhere books are sold, but to shout out a dear friend of mine, Dr. Mark Lamont Hill, who has a bookstore here in Philadelphia that is called Uncle Bobby's. You can get your book from Uncle Bobby's. You can order it online and they will get it to you. So absolutely support Black businesses. And so doing independent businesses, particularly in this moment where so many businesses are are working hard to stay open. So if you can buy the book from an independent Black bookstore, I would absolutely appreciate that.
0: Excellent. And I am a big fan of Uncle Bobby's. So there you have it. Thank you so much, Dr. Yaba Blay, for joining me on Melting Pot Stories.
1: Thank you for having me, Lori.
0: Are you fired up after that conversation? I am. I really hope you enjoyed and got something useful out of it for your writing practice. Despite the fact that this conversation was recorded over a year ago, After listening again to Yaba's experience getting OneDrop published, I feel even more determined to help as many BIPOC writers as possible get their stories and their books out into the world by any means necessary. Now, while I wouldn't wish the hardships that Yaba had to go through on her self-publishing journey on anyone, I do hope that all of you listening understand that traditional publishers aren't always going to want your work, but that doesn't mean your work isn't worthy it doesn't mean that there isn't an audience for your book. So don't give up because somebody out in the world needs to read your story. You can keep up with Dr. Yaba Blay on the socials. She's so very active on Instagram at Yaba Blay. That's her name at Y-A-B-A-B-L-A-Y. Or visit her website at yabablay.com. Of course, links are in the show notes. The Read, Write, and Create podcast is produced by me, Lori L. Tharps. Our editor is Brad Linder, and our theme music is by Wataboy. Don't forget, you can find the full show notes for this episode, as well as a heap of useful and fun literary resources, including all the info and updates about our first writing retreat for BIPOC women writers on the Read, Write, and Create website. And that's at readwriteandcreate.com. That's readwriteandcreate.com. And as of this taping, let's see, it's today is June 30th. There are still three spots left for the retreat. So if you're interested and you want to run away and write with me in Spain in October 2023, please check the website now. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform so you know when I drop the next bonus episode. And while you're subscribing to things, I would really suggest that you subscribe to the Read, Write, and Create bi-monthly newsletter so you'll be the first to know about all of my upcoming classes, workshops, retreats, and coaching opportunities. And I've just added a new feature to the newsletter. So the newsletter comes out twice a month. One of those issues will be just a listing of writing opportunities to help you get your work out into the world. I'll leave a link to sign up for the newsletter in the show notes. Until next time, keep writing.